Well, welcome everybody. It's a, a real honor to be asked to do this. And um, we have a, a good crowd for a beautiful August Sunday. Well, pardon? October. What did I say? August. Okay. August. August. Let it be that. <laughs> Lord, may the words of my mouth. <laughs> so I went from being a low church Baptist to a high church Episcopalian in one week. <laughs> I left sunny California on a Monday, a Baptist, and I was worshiping at St. Barnabas in Glen Ellen, a very high Episcopal church, on Sunday. Now, my intentions were not so noble because I was there chasing a certain woman who would someday agree to be my wife. <laughs> and I had never set foot in a liturgical church. In fact, I probably never even remember hearing the word Episcopalian or Anglican. So it was Kathy who got me to go. I didn't have any high expectations. I didn't really know what to expect. But as a music history major, having graduated not too long before, I was so pleasantly surprised to hear what I had studied in school sung. I was hearing the sung mass, the stuff that I was on tests and exams. I was hearing it live, and I knew I was home. One of the things I do remember was juggling this book, the prayer book, and the wonderful 1982 hymnal. Because at the time, they didn't put the order of service in the, in the bulletin. You had to use the prayer book. In fact, I think it was that way for a number of years for me. And I, it wasn't until I got to St. Mark's Glen Ellen where Martin had the whole thing in there or chipped it. So that was my first encounter with the Book of Common Prayer. I was later confirmed, so now I'm a card-carrying Anglican. I think before talking about how to pray the Psalms, it helps to just understand what they are. I know it was helpful for me to do that. So how are the Psalms different in the Bible? I picture them in my mind as this monolith in the middle of these other 65, chat or other 65 books as being unique in its purpose. So this is what I have come to, but maybe you can offer up any suggestions you have of how you differentiate the Psalms from the rest of the Bible. Anybody have a comment? Okay, it's early. <laughs> Right, very specifically. <clears throat> Pardon? Yes, I'm sorry. It, I was asking how you view the Psalms as different from the rest of the Bible. 
and Anne landed on something that I had come to, is that this is a place where we're really crying out. This is a place where we're approaching God with our petitions, with our frustrations, with our gratitude. Where, For instance, if you're walking through the Arboretum on a beautiful October day, um, you don't want to read Deuteronomy. <laughs> you, you want to read a psalm. So it... It's a place where we can be very honest with God, and I'm going to get to uh, a bit more of that in a second. It is poetry, and it's poetry because it's also the lyrics to hymns, and so many of the psalms have instructions to the musicians, so it's definitely meant to be sung, and we're going to listen to a couple of examples in a minute. Now, the I looked it up in the dictionary. A poem is a literary work with special intensity. It's given to the expression of feelings and ideas by the distinctive use of, uh, by the use of a distinctive style. So David definitely shares his intensity and his feelings. You know, he's, may, may those who try to kill me be humiliated and put to shame, or God, where are you? And then very, uh, contritely, for I acknowledge my faults and my sin is ever before me. So as you read through the Psalms, you get this intensity of feeling and expression. I was listening to a discussion between two strange bedfellows, Bono of U2 and Eugene Peterson, who happens to be one of Bono's idols, and they were talking about the Psalms. And Bono pointed out something that I really hadn't thought that much about. But he was speaking to the, the David the artist, David the poet. And he made the point that the artist, the creator, must be uh, transparent, must be brutally honest. And that's what we see in David. But he does it in such beautiful language with this turn of phrase and these long-form poems and even odes. But if you don't see the poetry, Thomas Merton says it's okay because there's poetry in the content itself. So just like we say he, you know, his, his cooking is poetry, which addresses the quality of the thought. That's what, be, that's what is being conveyed. So. Um, you can just think of, of the very thoughts, the very concepts as the poetry. But um, I prefer to view it also as uh, a literary form. The Psalms also give us a way to pray because it gives us the words. Just like the, the prayer book gives us the colics and other prayers and other ways to express ourselves, um, the Psalms do the same, and that's why we're going to talk about praying the Psalms. It was funny, I was raised in a non-liturgical home, and there was some criticism of the way that people would repeat their prayers every week. But I have come to discover there's a reason why, because you can't top some of those prayers. They're just too beautiful. And if you say them with the same meaning, it doesn't make any difference, and it's a way that we can can find the words to express ourselves. In our prayer book, we have the Cloverdale Psalter inserted in the middle. And 
Mary spoke to this a little bit in the very first session. Miles Cloverdale was born in 1488 and was a priest and an archbishop. And uh, this was at the time of Henry VIII. But he made some nasty comments that offended the Roman Catholics. So he, like William Tyndale, had to leave town. So they both ended up in Antwerp. Now, William Tyndale was, uh, at the time, translating the Bible from the Latin into to English. And so Cloverdale came alongside him and apparently offered a lot of assistance. Now, Tyndale got himself into trouble, and he was betrayed, subsequently executed, with, before he had completed his work. So Cloverdale took it over and actually finished the entire Bible in English. Now, Tyndale usually gets the credit for it, but it's Cloverdale who actually finished it, got it across the finish line, and dedicated it to Henry VIII, probably as a, a political stunt. But why the Cloverdale Psalter? Well, I, I think it's probably because of tradition. But the language, as Mary pointed out, is very beautiful. It's supposedly one of the more metrical uh, versions of the Psalms. But that's the one that we have in our Book of Common Prayer. Now, what about the canticles? We usually come across the canticles when we're doing evening and morning prayer. And it, it's usually one or two of them. It's usually the Benedictus or the Te Deum. But there are 10 others that are set apart, starting at page 79 in your prayer book. And they are 100% scripture, but they are, they, they are meant to be for specific occasions. At least that's how I take it. A lot of them have a subhead above them that says, especially suitable for Lent, or especially suitable for Easter. So it is scripture, and you can pray it. So I'm going to fold that into my comments about how to pray the Psalms. So why do we have a Psalter in the Book of Common Prayer? Like Father James, I was surprised that all this real estate was taken up by the Psalter. One third of the book is the Psalter, or I'm sorry, one fourth of the book is, is uh, taken up by the Psalter. And I came up with some reasons that I was satisfied with. It is the original prayer book. This is the one that Jesus had. And as N.T. Wright says, if the Psalms are good enough for Jesus, they're good enough for us. So it's this prayer book within a prayer book. And Jesus and the apostles referred to the Psalms uh, 60 times, according to the count in the NLT. I think also there's a proximity factor because there's the the daily offices and Holy Communion rely so heavily on the Psalms. It's just nice that they're all there in one place and you're not going to another source. It's also, like I mentioned before, one of the original hymnals. 
And we know that because of the instructions given to the musicians at the time. And we know that they are meant to be sung. Now, I have to be honest, I don't sing them. I'm a little embarrassed. Now, I think my wife does. When we have our quiet time, she's in the other room. But she does hers in German. A quiet time in German, I don't know. But anyway, she'll often say when I come in to get my breakfast, oh, that hymn was so amazing. And it's some German composer from yesteryear. A number of years ago, I went on a retreat. I was going through a particularly hard time. It's probably a midlife crisis of some sort. And I went to St. Gregory's Abbey, which is an Episcopal monastery in Three Rivers, Michigan. I don't know, have any of you been there? Yeah, isn't it a beautiful place? Yeah. Well, I happen to be the only person in this wonderful guest house. So that was kind of nice. But the monks invited me to come to the daily offices. The first one begins at 3 a.m. But I made it. And I was sitting there in this very dark chapel. There were a couple of candles burning. And the doors finally opened. And in walked the monks, two abreast with candles. And they sat at their prayer desk and began chanting the psalms. And it was the first time I had heard that done live. Now, I listened to Gorian chant in school, but never had I heard it in this context. And it was... uh, amazing. So I'm going to play just a little bit of what that might have sounded like, and I'm sure you've all heard Gregorian chant before. So just like we sing here, you get this monotone for a number of syllables and then this little flourish at the end of the phrase and another monotone and this little flourish. If you open up your bulletin and look at the insert that has the psalm on it, you'll see some little slashes and underlines. Does anybody know what that's called? What? Pointing. Yes, and Lee Hoffner does this every week for us. And there are different ways to do it, but this is the way that uh, we do it here at All Souls. So that little slash, the first one shows the end of that monotone and the beginning of the flourish. And where it's underlined, you get what is called the melisma, where you sing several notes for one syllable or one word. And 
then you get a second melody, as it were, when you get past the asterisk. So the asterisk is the first line, and then after the asterisk is the second line. So I wanted to play a few more samples of the hymns being sung in different styles. So bear with me here. So this, this first one is played on a lyre. Apparently this guy built a lyre based on what he had learned about David's lyre and then studied as much as he could the ancient uh, scales that they might have used in singing these. But no one really knows for sure because they didn't write it down. It was all improvisatory. Sorry. So just try to imagine David sitting there on his lyre singing. Now there are other instruments that are mentioned in the Psalms, like drums. So there could have you could end up having a sound that's it's very much like a band playing. So the, these people are singing using more modern instruments, but modeled after the ancient ones, but they are singing in the ancient Hebrew. Kind of jazzy, huh? <laughs> you can see why David would want to get up and dance. <laughs> be... Pardon? Yeah, yes. See if you can guess who this next artist is. I just have two more. This, this is modern day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Far from the words of my glory. So monotone with a little flourish. Anybody know who that is? Pardon? Renan Ortega, yeah. Yeah. I knew he would have something. And one last one. I'll let you guess the composer.
Any guesses? Brahms. It's the fourth movement from the German Requiem. Right, but they were singing from Psalm 84. How lovely is that dwelling place. It's a gorgeous piece. All right, so I got to use my music history degree, finally. <laughs> well, what about praying the Psalms and the Canticles? Well, I thought, well, I need to read a book about this because I don't really understand it completely. So I went to Amazon and I searched for it, and I found 408 titles. And of course, all the, the biggies have written about it. N.T. Wright, C.S. Lewis, Thomas Merton, Tim Keller. They all have titles praying the Psalms. But here's my very practical take, because I'm a practical person. How am I going to do this? So let me give you some things that I have discovered work for me. First of all, you have to know which psalm or psalms you're going to be singing, praying, reading that particular day or particular office. Mary talked about the lectionary a couple of weeks ago, so that is your resource. If you're using an app, uh, it will probably be right in the app. You don't have to go looking for it. But if you don't have the app, if you go to page 270 in your prayer book, and this is Psalm 1, and this is just an example of what is carried out throughout the entire Psalms. So it starts at the very top with day one morning prayer. And then if you count one, two, three, four, five, there's five Psalms that are sung or prayed under that one rubric. And then you come over to page 274, Psalm number six, that begins evening prayer. So if, and this is based on the 30-day cycle. So every 30 days, you're going to go through 150. And the monks at St. Gregory's are on the 30-day, so, but they have seven offices to get through them. So um, it's a little bit easier for them. So um, that's how it breaks down if you're on that cycle. You don't have to be. You can be on a 60-day cycle. Um, the other, the other time when I look for a psalm is when I am feeling a special need. A lot of times I'm feeling guilty and I need penitence. So I'm going to go and I'm going to pray Psalm 51. And Psalm 51, maybe God knew I needed that because it's written in a way that you can pray it verbatim in first person all the way through. Next, what version are you going to use? Now, I know this is heresy, but the Cloverdale is not the only version. So I start with the Cloverdale. I'll read through it. And if, I'm, if I feel that the language is a little obfuscated, I'll turn to my New Living Translation, something that I can understand. But it also helps if you ask yourself, OK, what is this psalm trying to say? And there's um, let me hand something out here. Uh, 
There are many resources like this, but at the bottom of that, I give a website for, uh, I, I think it takes you to the ESV.org website where they explain the different types of psalms, the penitential psalms, the psalms of thanksgiving. So it helps to line those up in your own mind. What is this psalm about? What is it trying to say? I often then turn to my to the commentary. I have the NLT and the ESV study Bibles, so I'll take a look at that. But I just feel before you start praying it, or if you want to read it with any sort of meaning, you need to know what it what it's, uh, is saying. I also like to ask myself, who is the audience? Who is he speaking to? Or who is doing the speaking? Sometimes in the middle of a psalm, it'll go from the psalmist praying to God to all of a sudden God talking to the psalmist. And it sneaks up on you. You have to be careful. Um, it catches me off guard like, what just happened? So the easiest ones to pray naturally for me are those in the first person or the pronoun I. But as you read one that might vary a little bit and you get to the word God or Lord or he or him, you can just change it out to you. And I'll show you how to do that in just a second. If you look at Psalm 7 on page 275, it starts out in the first person. O Lord, my God, in you I have put my trust. And then by the time you get down to verse 11, it changes a little bit. God is my shield and my defense. So all of a sudden he's talking about God and not praying to him directly. At least that's what it sounds like to me. So you can just say, you. You are my shield and my defense. And this is a simple enough one. You could just do it in your head as you're praying. So that's important to me, to feel like I'm addressing God when I am praying the psalm. The other thing I have done, and I'm not a theologian, but when I read ab about David's enemies, he's, I think he spends half the psalms complaining about his enemies. Well, I don't have the same kind of enemies David did. I don't have people trying to kill me, at least not to my knowledge. So, who are my enemies? What are my enemies? So I have transposed it and said, Satan is my enemy. My, the temptations that are uh, placed in front of me are my enemies. So that's how I try to think of things like that. Otherwise, the Psalms aren't going to mean quite as much because it's always David talking about these enemies. When it's really unclear how you should pray the psalm, you might just want to read it meditatively. Don't try to pray it. But again, just like Thomas Merton says, try to find the poetry and the content, you can do the same thing as you read it. You can also pick out salient verses that mean something to you and then craft it in to your prayer or fold it into your, your own 
personal prayer that, that morning or that day. And in, uh, on, the, on the handout, I show an example of that. Yeah, thank you. This is Psalm 1, which really isn't in the first person. It's a little difficult to pray, but I went through it and kind of summed up the thoughts that were there and then converted it into a prayer that in the first person. And I won't go through it, but you can see what I have done there in the red. Again, this is just the way that I would interpret this and how I would make it part of my prayer life. Tim Keller said he went through the Psalms and he wrote down the salient verses and he got it all on nine pages. So as he reads the Psalms and he uses the, our uh, prayer book lectionary to do the Psalms, he's on the 30 day cycle and he uses these little phrases to help him form those prayers. So if it's simple enough, you can just do it in your head. If it's in the first person, you can just pray it uh, verbatim. But over time, you might create a notebook for yourself. I saw, um, a, I've never seen this before, but a Bible that's got half scripture on a page and just a huge scholar's margin where you can write on the other. And I thought that would be a perfect way of going through and permanently writing down how you want to pray that particular psalm. So does anybody have any questions, any tips for me on how you read the psalms, pray the psalms, think of the psalms? Yes, Mary. Oh, that's a great, so did you hear that? She said sometimes she doesn't relate to that particular psalm on that particular day, but she thinks of it in terms of somebody else, praying for somebody else. That's a great point. I would have included that if I'd heard that before. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Mary. Right. It's from the message, right? Yeah, it's yeah. from the I've watched a number of videos on how to do it. 
and I know we've, I've been doing it, you know, for the last 40 years, but I didn't even want to attempt it. <laughs> I embarrassed myself. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I mentioned it before. It's this, it's this monotone with a little flourish at the end. And there's a, a resource there on the bottom of the handout. It's a YouTube series by a guy named Adam Smith. And he does a whole series of videos on how to uh, point your psalms and how to sing them. And he's got a, an example of some, some people singing. So I would suggest you take a look at that. that yeah. Yes, Henny. It's a prayer app? Oh, okay. All right. Oh, and Yeah. I listen to Lectio 365, which is the reading scripture and talking about it. It's very good. Yes, Sarah? Go ahead. Did you hear? No, I didn't. When I started doing that, I mentioned, I told them that I was going to just share the verses in the psalm that meant something to me. I wasn't going to go through and do an exegesis of every verse and every psalm, but just these are the verses of this psalm that mean something to me. And it helps me find a way to relate to psalms that I didn't relate to before. So since I started psalms and in late June, it's really given, it's really opened it up to me to get that deep. Because when I mean, you have to say something to somebody else about that particular psalm, you have to think through it very carefully and try to form something, some cogent thought. Some are probably more cogent than others, but thank you, Sarah. That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> because I, I am doing this 
study with my kids, and I also want to do my own reading. If I'm pressed for time, I usually end up doing the psalm and this little devotional as opposed to some of the other reading. But you don't have to do all of the psalms. For instance, in that example I gave the first day of morning prayer, you've got five of them. Well, maybe you don't have to do them all. Again, I think God is more interested in your heart and where you are right then than getting through so much material. There's, there's nothing in scripture that says you have to do all five. That's a, yeah, Mary. You know, one of the things that surprised me is that uh, later in my adult life was that David didn't write them all. He wrote 73 to 75, depending on who you're reading. Uh, the rest are by that amazing writer, Anonymous, and Solomon and a few others. But I, I'm, I'm particularly drawn to the ones that are, are written by David. I mean, they're, they're all great, but I don't know. I just feel more compassion uh, when I'm reading something from David, because I kind of view him sometimes as the Peter of, you know, the Old Testament, kind of just laying it all out there, being completely transparent. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm going to cut it short because I would be ringing the bell right now. I have to verge, so I've got to get my crow suit on. So, thank you, everybody.